in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. I was looking at the bulletin this morning. Looks like I forgot to change the sermon title. It still says the grace of giving. I guess the offering wasn't big enough last week or something. We were just going to run that one through again. I don't know. <laughs> no, that's uh, that's not the title of the sermon this morning. Oh, speaking of that, let's see if we can find the sermon this morning. Okay. The title of the sermon this morning is Partners in Ministry. And... Uh, Tomorrow's Memorial Day, and I, I usually say something about Memorial Day, um, but uh, I didn't really put that into my sermon at all, so I just direct you to the note that I wrote in the bulletin about that. I think it is an important, it's one of those important holidays that I think we should recognize as Christians, recognizing the value of the freedoms that God's given us. And um, so I just direct you to the note in the bulletin on that and try not to get all red, white, and blue on you this morning. Um, Second <laughs> Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to read verses 16 through 24 here in a moment. We find ourselves again in this 8th chapter of the Apostles' second inspired letter to the church that was meeting in the city of Corinth. And in these closing verses of this chapter, we see the Apostle speaks to the specifics of his plan for collecting the gift that the uh, Corinthian church had promised to contribute to the ministry in uh, Jerusalem. And while it it may seem like it's like just a few verses dealing with the technical aspects of Paul's ministry, and really it is. There, There is embedded herein some powerful and essential truths about the partnering nature of the ministry to which we are called. And Paul shows here that the ministry is not something to which he is exclusively bound. And by that I mean, he's not the only one called to it. He shows here that the ministry is something to which we are all called, of which we are all a part. God has never positioned his ministers as lone rangers but as team members, partners in life's greatest endeavor. And if you wonder how God can use you in the ministry, in his service, you'll find the answers here in this passage. And if you you will work for him, 
and throw yourself into his service, you should really know what it is that concerns the one you serve. And you'll find the answers to this as well in these eight verses. As a matter of fact, you'll find eight answers here. And um, the first four answers will, will be how God will use you. And the second four will answer what concerns the God that you mean to serve. So let's jump right into our text. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 16 through 24. But thanks be to God, which put the same earnest care into the heart of Titus for you. For indeed, he accepted the exhortation. But being more forward of his own accord, he went unto you. And we have sent with him, the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And not that only, but who was also chosen of the churches to travel with us with this grace, which is administered by us to the glory of the same Lord and declaration of your ready mind. Avoiding this, that no man should blame us in this abundance which is administered by us, providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have oftentimes proven diligent in many things. But how much more diligent upon the great confidence which I have in you. Whether any do inquire of Titus, he is my partner and fellow helper concerning you. Or a brethren be inquired of, they are the messengers of the churches and the glory of Christ. Wherefore, show ye to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to learn about the ministry to which you have called us. God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would work in the congregation today and help each and every person here to see the part that you intend for them to play in your work. Help us, Lord, all to embrace the responsibility that comes with the freedom that you have given us. Help us, Lord, to see the task ahead of us. Embrace it wholeheartedly in the power of God. That we might all see ourselves as partners in ministry and in accomplishing your will. And God, if there's someone here today that hasn't yet come to that place in their heart where they recognize their need for the righteousness of Christ, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would convict them of that today that they might also join the team. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Following on the heels of last week's passage on the subject of giving, and I guess if you look at the bulletin, it's this one this week as well, but uh, we see the context of intent 
to give on the part of the church in the city of Corinth. Um, Paul is encouraging them in this regard and is now arranging the actual pickup of the gift that they were sending to Jerusalem. You know, one thing about Paul's ministry that has always stricken me as a powerful truth is the team aspect that he employed. Paul never ran off on his own to conduct his ministry. It seems as high profile as he was in ministry in the in the early church and as high profile as he is in the New Testament, it may almost seem like he was out there just slugging away by himself. But he never was. There were times when he felt very alone, and even times when he was deserted by almost everyone. But he always assembled a team. He sought to gather around him other men and other women who partnered with him in the same mission, and he constantly recognizes them throughout all his letters. And that is God's intent for getting his work done. God designed the church in part to accomplish this purpose. We are a body of blood-bought, fully redeemed sinners, sanctified for His use and commissioned to accomplish His purposes. We're designed as a family. We're positioned as a body, commissioned as a military unit, combined as a team, and sent forth in this world together. If you think God is leading you to launch off on your own, let me assure you that there is a spirit that leads to this end. But it is not the Holy Spirit. If you think that ministry is for others, for, for leaders only, and that your part is more of a spectator, let me assure you as well that you have been deceived. That is not God's plan for you. The only spectator seats in ministry are for those who have already gone on. They are the cloud of witnesses witnessing what we accomplish on this earth for God. We are not spectators. We are the team on the field. God has a plan for you to accomplish His work. And He intends to work through you. And these verses show us what God will use in your life to accomplish His work. And if this sermon today... strikes a little bit of fear in your heart as you come to the realization, oh, do you mean, you mean me? You're, you're saying that I'm supposed to be playing on the team, right? You know that feeling before you go into a sporting event, the butterflies in your stomach, 
Oh man, I hope I don't mess this up, right? <laughs> Understand this. That that's that's okay. Because you are about to do something. You are about to be expected to accomplish something for God. Because you are on the field. So whether you act like a team member or not is is it doesn't change the fact that you are on the field wearing the uniform of your team. So it might as well start contributing to the game, right? <laughs> and on the other hand, doesn't that make you feel a little bit more special than I'm just one of the spectators? I mean, God has a plan for me. He's got a part for me to play. You were chosen for the team. You, you know that 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 uh, time before when before the game when the two team captains the two most athletic kids stand up and it's always obvious which two guys is going to be right they're going to be the team captains and then they pick I, I remember this vividly as a child and it's because I got to watch all of the picking. And, and, you know, for, for my part, I was never really chosen. It was just kind of a default thing. Yeah. <laughs> I was the only one left, and whoever didn't pick last gets Josh. <laughs> you know? And <clears throat> they just had no idea what they were missing. That's the thing. Yeah. And um, And so... I'm not sure where that came in. I just <laughs> anyway. But we're all on the on the field. We're we're a part of the team. You should see yourself as a part of the team, not as one of the spectators. So then, uh, God intends to work through you. And and in these first few verses, we see how God will use you uh, to accomplish His work. And the first truth that I see is in verse 16. I want you to get an eyeball on that. It says, But thanks be to God, which put the same earnest care into the heart of Titus for you. This is very revealing. What it shows <coughs> is that God uses love that He puts... In our hearts. That's how God gets his work done. He uses love that he puts in our hearts. That's the, that's the, the mechanics of it, if you will. It's, it's the practical side of ministry. It's how God intends to make a difference in people around you. He uses the love that he's put into your heart. In this verse, Paul is speaking of Titus. Titus was the one whom Paul was sending to pick up the gift that the Corinthian church had committed to send to Jerusalem. And this, this part that Titus plays in the facilitation of this ministry, I mean, it's an important one. It's primarily, though, as a, as a messenger. And he's to deliver this gift that's in question. However... The Holy Spirit makes a, a special point here that Titus cares about the people of Corinth. Do you, do you see that in, the, in, in verse 16? 
that Titus cares about the people in Corinth. And this care, this affection, this love that Titus has in his heart for the people to whom he was to minister was put there by God. You see that also in verse 16? That's pretty clear, right? That this earnest care that Titus has for the people in Corinth, that care was put into Titus's heart by God himself. This wasn't an affection that was part of Titus's nature. It was God's nature that had been imparted to Titus. You see how that works in ministry? I think sometimes we get the idea that ministry is for those people who naturally love others. You know, and you know those people who are who are just the loving type, right? And those are the people that God chooses to minister to others. But here's how it really works. God's the one that loves people and makes a difference in people's lives. And he chooses a vessel to carry his love to people. This is how God will use you. He makes a difference in the lives of others with his love. And you are the channel through which he intends to flow. Do you fear that you'll never be able to muster up the affection that you need to make an impact on people? I mean, I don't know if you feel like uh, you're emotionally limited. Um, I mean, some of us feel that way. You think, how on earth could I ever, you know have enough affection to actually minister to people. Well, let me just give you a little personal testimony from one of the most emotionally limited people I know. (laughs) And he's the guy I saw in the mirror this morning. The love that comes from God to the people that you minister is overwhelming. And that's when the difference is actually made. And when I'm looking inside for, you know, natural affection, it doesn't... <laughs> I think we've got agreement in the family over here. <laughs> no, I'm <laughs> just kidding, sorry. <laughs> then, then it's just not there. But when I let myself become a channel of God's love to the world... Then it begins to make a difference. Do you see the love that flows out of people in the work of God and think that they're just real loving people? That is not how it works. God loves people through his ministers. And what I see in verse 16 is that it is God that put that same earnest care into the heart of Titus for the people of Corinth. The key is to embrace the love that God has shown to you. And then, when you're full to overflowing, let that love flow into the lives of people around you. This is the practical mechanics of it. Alright? It is not just that you um, stay unloved yourself and that you become just a, a extemporaneous channel of God's love to His people. You actually have to receive God's love. You have to recognize how much God loves you. 
And when you are filled with God's love for you, that's when it begins to overflow and make a difference in the lives of people around you. Paul knew that it would make a difference to the people in the church in Corinth that Titus loved them. So he made sure that they knew this truth. He also made sure that they would see where that love comes from. You know, I found in my uh, ministry early on when I was working in inner city in, in Jacksonville, Florida, um, to show people how much I loved them really made a difference in ministry. It was one thing to go into the inner city where I was the only person that looked like me and tell them how they needed to get their lives straightened out and, you know, start acting more like me. You know what I'm saying? That's how it comes off. That's why I'm saying it that way. But whenever I would go into their houses and sit on their couch and just spend time with them, Every now and then one of them would tell me, you're different. You're, you're a little different than a lot of other people. And, I, and I mean, I'm not all that different. I just let, I, I just learned to let God love people through me. And that, that's really, that's what makes the difference. It makes an impact on the people to whom you minister for them to know, like, he really cares. And Paul here is, is communicating this to the people in Corinth because it, it does make a difference. And he's also letting them know it's not just that Titus is a loving person. God put that love in his heart. God uses the love that he puts in our hearts. The next truth about how God will use you is revealed in the next verse, verse 17. God uses exhortation from others. God uses exhortation from others. Um, I, I, I uh, try to simplify the the old King James English a little bit every now and then and, and, and substitute words. And when I wrote this point in the outline, I originally wrote encouragement um, because exhortation does mean encouragement, but it's also uh, like encouragement with a little bit of forcefulness behind it. And... What exhortation really means is exhortation, and that's not really another way to say that that I can think of. You know, it may, it's an encouraging command, if you will. Um, it comes from, uh, <coughs> oh, we'll get that in a minute. So Paul points out here that Titus had been given uh, exhortation himself. He acknowledges that Titus had plenty of personal motivation for going to Corinth uh, as well but that he nevertheless was exhorted to this end. The word translated into our English word exhortation is from parakletos. Anyone know uh, what to what person that is related? Yeah, all right. It's the one who comes along beside. And, and um, it, it means to come alongside. And in this instance... Titus was forward, it says, to perform this work. It means he was kind of leaning into it, right? And, and he had the impetus himself. He wanted to do it. And then he was told to do it. 
just kind of make a little personal application in your life. You ever have the impetus? You want to do something? And then someone tells you to do it? And then you're like, I don't really want to do that. (laughs) You know, um, God uses exhortation from others. You've got to kind of be in a special place in your heart to receive exhortation and let it work in you, right? Paul came alongside him and said, Titus, I want you to do this. I need you to do this. For Titus to accept this exhortation took some humility on his part. It meant that he was willing to step up and do what someone else told him to do. Whatever Titus' own ambitions were, or personal desires. He was willing to accept the guidance and direction of another person. And this is essential in doing the Lord's work. There's many who are willing to step up and do the Lord's work as long as it's their idea and everyone knows it's their idea. Right? <laughs> Titus is willing to accept the exhortation of the apostle and he wanted to do the work that he was asked to do. In our next verse, we see the character changes. It's not Titus of whom the passage speaks in the next verse. It's someone else. You say, who? I have no idea. Someone unnamed. You all love to go unnamed, right? You love to do work and then have people talk about the work that you've done, but not let them know that you did it. Yeah, that just comes natural to us to love that lack of recognition, right? Um, I'm just being a smart aleck now. So, some theorize that this is Luke that's mentioned here. Others think it's Barnabas or Apollos or Mark or John. However, in our text, he's just known as the brother. There, <laughs> there isn't much glory in going unnamed. But name recognition isn't what serving God is about. Whether his name is known or mentioned is immaterial. What's clear is that he has a reputation in the churches, and that is our third point in this regard. Verse 18 says, And we have sent with him the brother, whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. This brother is mentioned to be a man of reputation in the church. The praise that's readily brought up about him is in his relationship to the gospel. Did you see that there in verse 18? His praise is in the gospel. This means that he is praised for his gospel work. Go ahead and make the personal application. How about you? How are you known? Are you known for your relationship to the gospel? Is that what people immediately connect to you? Is your gospel work? When people in the church mention you in conversation, I'm not talking about gossip here. I'm just talking about conversation, healthy conversation about other people. That's, that's, that's okay. Um, <laughs> is it universally recognized that you are deeply and inexorably linked to the gospel? This fellow in verse 18 is known, not just in the one church, but well known in all the churches. Oh, that we might seek a reputation 
for faithful service in the gospel. From our text, we can see that this fellow's reputation was a major factor in how God used him in this instance. He was a man that could be trusted to put the cause of the gospel above his own ambitions and his own causes. A man who uh, exemplifies this reputation for faithfulness is a fellow I don't talk about very often. His name is Tim Johnson. Um, I mention him just because yesterday he posted on Facebook that his wife's in the hospital. She has MS. And um, I'm looking for notes here. I had other notes here. Um, And, oh, there they are. I can stop looking. I found them. So, (coughs) Tim Tim started uh, a church in uh, Willits over 22 years ago. And he has been through just no end of trials. I mean, it, it, like I said, his wife has MS and they have, she has stood by his side when it was difficult to stand, I mean, uh, for for so long. And their church has just struggled for many, many years. And you know, Tim and I are quite different from each other. But I'm inspired by his, uh, by his faithfulness. Um, and there was one point where he made a little personal post about uh, him, his 22nd anniversary in ministry back in September of last year, and um, and I wrote a little poem for him. Um, and I thought I thought I was really thinking I shouldn't read this because it makes me um, it. it kind of makes me look like I'm feeling sorry for myself a little bit. Um, but uh, <laughs> but then I thought, well, I've, I've gone and posted it on Facebook, so then I'm just one of those people that will post things on Facebook that he won't say in public. So, <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and read it. And uh, just understand, my purpose in this was to identify with Tim, and I know the struggles that he goes through. And uh, uh, he and I have... Um, some things in common and then a, a lot that that we don't <coughs> and I'd like to you know say since then I've actually taken a couple of breaks but anyway you'll see where that's coming from so this isn't one of those rhyming poems I didn't really have time for that it was a late uh, Saturday night there's an ox in the yoke beside me and I don't actually see him there we both wear blinders We're not like most of the oxen who plow this field. We don't get breaks. We don't spend much time with the other oxen. We plow a field that's far from the others. We have second occupations by necessity. I call these our blinders. Our second jobs keep us from seeing each other, and sometimes that feels lonely. Uh, Who am I kidding? All the time that feels lonely. But I know I'm not alone. There's an ox in the yoke beside me. Sometimes I see the fruit of his labors in the furrow ahead of me, and sometimes he sees the fruit of mine. We've rejoiced at times over fruit we both see in the distance, and we've wept together over the loss of a mutual friend. That was Brother Palkey. There are times when I feel like quitting. The plow is heavy, the ground is so hard. 
And these traces cut into my shoulders. And I just want to rest like some of the other oxen. But, this is going to be hard to get through. There's an ox in the yoke beside me, and he's been there for 22 years. Six years more than I. And I hear his labored breathing, and I know he struggles too, but he just keeps pulling. I know of injuries that he has sustained, some worse than my own, and I feel him stumble with fatigue sometimes, but he he just keeps pulling. And if he can stay in the traces, so can I. We both serve the same Lord, and that Lord saw fit to put us near each other. And if our blinders, even if our blinders keep us from seeing each other, Lord, thank you for the ox in the yoke beside me. Um, And then after my rare emotional moment, um, Tim didn't read that for four days. And four days later, uh, he comments, um, wow, this couldn't have come at a more appropriate time, struggling this week. Many trials that seem so insurmountable. With every blessing, I've learned that this devil fights even harder to discourage. Thank you, my friend and my brother in Christ. Um <clears throat> We should seek to have a reputation for faithfulness. Because God uses that in ministry. He uses faithful service. I'll tell you right now, Brother Tim doesn't have a lot of people in his church this morning. And I know that he stands in his pulpit and he looks out at a lot of empty seats. And he gets discouraged by it. He's been there for going on 23 years. <laughs> but I'll tell you one thing, it makes a difference in anyone who knows him because he's faithful. And God uses a reputation for faithful service. In verse 19, we see one more that God uses the voice of the church. In verse 19 it says, And not that only, but who was also chosen of the churches to travel with us with this grace, which is administered by us to the glory of the same Lord and declaration of your ready mind. Paul here recognizes the authority of the individual churches. It's a glimpse into the authority structure that God intended to uh, to be in his church. And while Paul himself wields an authority that is unmatched in the modern world by any valid figurehead, he was an apostle, okay? I don't have any of those anymore. I actually consider apostles as an office in the church, but there was only 12 of them. And that there's no apostolic succession 
Once they died off, that office is, is left vacant. But Paul, with all of that authority that he had, Paul speaks of the commissioning of this brother as coming from the churches. And as with some of the other points in today's sermon, this one, it, you know, it's not highlighted by the native structure of the text. It's just a, a passing assumed fact that's evidenced herein. We can see the, the importance of the voice of the individual congregation here. Think of how we have followed this example in our own church. We send out missionaries to foreign lands. We authorize those missionaries to work in those foreign lands by a majority vote in a business meeting. Business meetings are awesome, aren't they? It's the church speaking. And, uh, and, and the voice of the church means something. And we commit then to stand behind them financially and to hold them accountable as well. Um, we pray for them as part of our team, as partners in this ministry. And that's how God designed the church. We're all part of the same team, and the church has a powerful voice in sending out ministers into the Lord's work. If you're seeking for how God might use you in ministry, ask to hear the voice of the church. Listen to the congregation. It's the indwelling Holy Spirit in each and every one of us that makes this democratic form of church government work. And it's a powerful and an insightful voice. From a practical perspective, once we realize how God will use us, we should seek out what God's concerns are in ministry, right? We know that our concerns must be His concerns. Our ministry needs to look like it's God's ministry, not our ministry. It needs to, our, our ministry needs to fit the brand of heaven. And our text shows us God's concerns, and it teaches us a few important principles <clears throat> with which to concern ourselves in his ministry. In the first point, I see, to, uh, I see this emphasized in verses 20 and 21. We've got four points left, five minutes. This sounds familiar. The first thing that I see is that God is concerned with the appearance of integrity in ministry. God is concerned with the appearance of integrity. As the mission of Paul speaks in our text, if you look at verses 20 and 21, you can see this. Uh, uh, avoiding this, that no man should blame us in this abundance with, uh, which is administered by us, providing for honest things. Not only in the sight of God, uh, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And as the mission of, of which Paul speaks in our text is in part to transport money from one location to another, there's the obvious concern that people have faith 
in the messengers who are carrying out that task, right? I, I think of my dad used to work as an armored car uh, driver. And, uh, you know, they get hungry, too. They stopped at Burger King, threw out the bag in the dumpster. And then they get to the end of their shift, and they're missing money. But they're not missing their bag of trash. (laughs) Yeah. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there was some scurrying, from what I understand, going on as they went digging through the McDonald's dumpster. <clears throat> what are you looking for? Oh, don't worry about it. <laughs> they didn't want anyone to lose confidence in the messenger, you know. You're transporting money. <laughs> you know, part of this uh, appearance of integrity is accomplished by multiple people being involved. People specifically of good reputation and known by the churches. People uh, who care for and love the churches. In verse 20, Paul literally says that he's avoiding the, the appearance of impropriety. He's avoiding the possibility of blame. You see that? He's making provision for honest things only. He's leaving no provisions for blame. And this is how we should conduct the financial aspects of ministry. Out in the open, transparently. Look, when you're involved in the Lord's work, always be sure to take deliberate steps to avoid potential for blame. You say, well, I, look, I know that I'm honest and that's all that matters. Okay. That's not all that matters. All right. (laughs) You know you're honest. I know you're honest. But let's just make it obvious to every person on the earth. Okay? That's how God wants his ministry done. He's concerned with integrity. He's concerned with the appearance of integrity. The next item that we see is, uh, is of concern to God is in verse 22. God is concerned with diligence in his work. Look at verse 22. It says, And we've sent with them our brother, whom we have oftentimes proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent upon the great confidence which I have in you. This appears to be yet another person, maybe Apollos, of whom Paul speaks, This person has a reputation for diligence. And this added character trait is deemed important in the process. Beloved, diligence is a concern of God. He wants us to focus on our work. He wants us to pour our efforts into it. And then he wants us to stick with it when it gets hard. That's diligence. It's one thing to be opportunistic in ministry, all right? And I don't mean it that in a bad way at all. We should look for opportunities to jump in and fill a need, right? I mean, that, that's, that's what I mean by being opportunistic in ministry, all right? We should be. That's not a bad thing. And it's important to, 
to jump in and fill a need. And, and God bless you who have done this in our congregation. Jumped in and, and saw the opportunity to fill a need. And here's the thing. It's quite another to continue in that task even when it seems to go unnoticed by everyone and becomes difficult beyond what it seemed in the beginning. Right? Oh, by the way, that's every task for which you will volunteer in ministry. Okay? That's how it works. You see, um, the... This is, this is how all tasks that are given in ministry are. They usually seem high profile and relatively simple at the beginning. There's a reason for that. I don't mean I'm trying to make them look more simple or anything and get you hooked in. That, that's not what I mean. I mean, is that the thing is, is, is they, they seem high profile and relatively simple at the beginning and, the, and then they become a little less glorious and quite difficult and draining as time goes on. And it's not just the nature of God's work, by the way. That's the nature of any institutional work. And this is an institution we're in, the church, okay? The, the, the need highlights the job right away. Here's why it's, it looks simple and high profile at the beginning. Because first of all, there's a need, so the job is highlighted right away. Everyone knows about it. So when you jump up and volunteer, you are the hero, all right? And make no mistake about it, you're the hero in my eyes too, okay? And, 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 and it's a good thing, and you volunteered, and that's great, and, and uh, uh, it highlights the job right away, the fact that it's needed, and everyone's aware of it because it's needed, and then you fill that need. And it's not needed anymore. So everyone stops thinking about it. <laughs> and then you're a nobody. Doing nothing work. That isn't, is it evidently all not, not all that important because it, you know, it's being done. <laughs> right? And that's just the nature of, of work at all in an institution. And then, of course, because we're limited in our perception as humans... Um, that job looks relatively simple on the front side. And then once you volunteered for the job, everyone else looks away because the need's been filled. And suddenly you are working seemingly unnoticed and the job turns out to be a lot harder than you thought. And that's how it works. And, and if you think I don't understand that's how it works on anything for which you've ever volunteered... Please know, I know that's how it works. That's when diligence comes into play. And God is concerned with diligence. He wants his work to get done day after day after day after day. And he wants it done well. Be sure of this. That his power doesn't wane with yours. And his attention span is a lot longer than everyone else's. So yeah, you volunteered to do something. It was a big deal. And you're still doing it and it doesn't seem like that big of a deal anymore. It's still a big deal to God. Okay? He's, he sees your labor. He sees your effort. He sees your diligence. And he is concerned with diligence. As we close out this chapter, I just noticed two more items of interest to God. And the next one is, again, just a, a passing mention in verse 23. 
whether any do inquire of Titus, he's my partner and fellow helper concerning you, or our brethren be inquired of, they are messengers of the church. And it's this last phrase that caught my eye, and the glory of Christ. Huh. So then I went back and read it again, and it says basically that all of these people who are involved as partners in ministry are the glory of Christ. That's grammatically what that, that last statement is saying. All these who are involved in the work of which Paul speaks, and he identifies the entire team here, are the glory of Christ. What a thought. Our part may be small or unseen, but we are all the means by which Christ is glorified. Now, lest that seem like an insignificant thing, let me remind you that the glory of Christ is God's primary concern throughout all of eternity. It's the greatest thing that can ever be accomplished on this earth or anywhere to glorify God. And Christ is God. Think of that. You want to be a part of something big? Something of note? You'll never find anything bigger than glorifying God. And working for Him in any role is destined to accomplish that end. God is concerned with nothing greater, and no person ever achieved anything of more importance than to glorify God. God is concerned with his glory in our ministry. Finally, in the last verse, Paul reminds them of the practical fulfillment of the promises that had been spoken. Just look at verse 24. Whether... Uh, wherefore, wherefore show ye to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. And for this I have just stated God is concerned with actions to back up words. As a matter of fact, he's concerned with actions over words. The Corinthian church had spoken of their love for the saints. And they had promised to contribute Paul and the other apostles and team members had boasted of the Corinthian church and of their spiritual progress. There had been a lot of talk, a lot of words, a lot of promises. And now was the time for action. God is concerned with action in ministry. It is one thing to be moved by a circumstance or a sermon and speak of our intentions. Or to make sure that people around us know that we are spiritual people. Committed people. It is quite another to back those, action, those words up with actions. And God is concerned with action over words. Let's be men and women of action. Look, if you see the bustle of kingdom work around you, and you feel the importance of it, perhaps you'd like to be a part of it. As a child of God, a redeemed sinner, you can jump right in and join the team. You can become a partner in ministry. Let's face it. You're already wearing the uniform and you're on the field, you might as well play. <laughs> However, if you've not yet embraced Jesus as your Savior, 
You're not yet part of the team. And you cannot be part of the team unless you're wearing the uniform, which is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. None of us here are wearing our own righteousness. Those filthy rags, they're just no good in the kingdom. We wear the righteousness of Christ. If you'd like to know how to be fitted for the uniform, come forward while we sing this invitation hymn. The challenge here is to surrender our all to him. To come to that place in our heart and in our lives when we recognize ourselves to be unfit. In need of a Savior because of our sinful condition. And let me tell you something. The uniform that he offers, the righteousness of Christ, it is available to all. The hymn that we're going to sing is, I Surrender All. If you'd like to know more about accepting Christ as your Savior... Go ahead and come forward and sit in the front row while we sing number 308 in your hymn books. Stand as you find that uh, or um, as you prepare to sing that. We have it up on the wall as well. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to Him I freely give. 